It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's one of the most consequential acts of a presidency. And on Friday, President Joe Biden introduced federal appeals court judge Ketanji Brown Jackson as his nominee to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. I'm pleased to nominate Judge Jackson, who will bring extraordinary qualifications, deep experience and intellect, and a rigorous judicial record to the court. In accepting the nomination, Judge Jackson said she hoped to inspire others as she was inspired by Judge Constance Baker Motley, a civil rights icon and the first black woman appointed as a federal judge. I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. My guest is constitutional law professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. What does Ketanji Brown-Jackson bring to the court? Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson brings so many things to the Supreme Court, it would be difficult to list them all. First, she has experience as a public defender. That is a perspective that is currently missing on the Supreme Court. She is also a former district judge. She is also someone with trial experience. Only Justice Sotomayor on the Supreme Court previously worked as a district judge, someone who actually oversaw trials. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson also worked on the Sentencing Commission that oversees all federal sentencing within the federal court. That's just some of the expertise she brings to the court. Of course, she also clerked for Justice Breyer, so she knows the person who she is replacing. She's a two-time graduate of Harvard, both for college and for law school. And she will be the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. She will be an incredible justice, and she is eminently qualified for the position. She's been seen as the leading contender for quite some time. There were two other judges on the short list. What does she bring that set her apart? Judge Jackson brings a kind of professional diversity to the Supreme Court that is really lacking and really important, namely her experience working with indigent criminal defendants. Um, There is no public defender on the Supreme Court. There is no 
lawyer who has been a civil rights lawyer on the Supreme Court. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson will bring those perspectives to the court, and the other nominees did not, even though they would have brought other forms of professional diversity to the court. And President Biden has really emphasized the importance of bringing public defenders, bringing civil rights lawyers into the federal courts. She sort of fits the mold of Justice Breyer, would you say, through schooling, the fact that she clerked for him? I mean, she frankly fits the mold of the traditional Supreme Court nominee with respect to her educational background and her educational qualification. She graduated with honors from a top law school. She clerked on the Supreme Court. So she has all of the traditional, let's say, educational qualifications and you know indications of excellence that another Supreme Court nominee would have. She just happened to use that intellectual skill and that expertise to work on behalf of indigent criminal defendants and on behalf of civil rights, whereas other nominees have not done that thus far. Will it change the court to have this new insight that she brings as a Black woman? I think it will change the court and be an important perspective for several different reasons. One is currently Justice Thomas is the only Black justice on the Supreme Court, and having another nominee will kind of add some complexity to the idea that Justice Thomas is you know, the voice of Black thought on the Supreme Court. Second is it will create a very powerful signal that all of the Democratic appointees on the Supreme Court are women. Those three justices will probably often find themselves in dissent, and it will be a powerful signal that there is a unified voice speaking on behalf of three women, you know, pushing back against the direction that this very aggressive conservative court may be heading in. I think it is also important to have the perspective of a black woman getting the issues that the Supreme Court is deciding. You know, the Supreme Court currently has on its docket a case in which the states are asking the courts to overrule Roe versus Wade, the decision recognizing that women have a constitutional right to decide to end a pregnancy. And black women face astonishingly high maternal mortality rates. And it is important, it will be a good thing that when the court in the future hears issues of reproductive rights, there will be someone on the court with the perspective of a black woman. It will be very important for the court when they next hear a case involving criminal procedure, that there will be someone on the court who has significant experience representing criminal defendants. Also, an affirmative action case is coming up, and I believe Clarence Thomas doesn't believe in affirmative action. Yes, that is another example where it will be a welcome development to have a more diverse set of voices representing, you know, people of color on the Supreme Court when the court takes up whether schools can consider race in making admissions decisions. Supreme Court confirmation hearings have become very confrontational and sometimes downright nasty. Less than a year ago, she was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, but it's different when it's the Supreme Court. It is different when it is the Supreme Court. I think objectively, we should expect these hearings to be, frankly, quite easy. You know, she sailed through the last round of confirmation hearings for a reason. She sailed through with the support of Republican senators. Nothing meaningful has changed from then to now, except the courts to which she is appointed. She has the same superb qualifications. She has the same excellent professional background. She has the same temperament. This is someone who by any conventional metric, should sail through the Supreme Court confirmation process. That's not to say she will, but this is someone whose qualifications, whose temperament, whose professional history all suggest this should be a very easy confirmation. And as far as what they could attack her or question her on, it seems like the case involving former White House counsel Don McGahn and his testimony before the committee 
might stand out to Republicans. How do you think they might use that case to try to claim that she's biased? So that was a case in which Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson rejected a claim of basically absolute immunity by the president's aides against testifying before Congress. That decision is very much consistent with every other court that has considered these expansive claims of presidential immunity by the Trump administration, nor is anything she said in that opinion substantially different than what other justices have written about these issues or other related ones. It's positive that they will try to use the opinion as, you know, some sort of fodder for questions, but it's hard to see how that could possibly get any traction. Thanks for your insights, Leah. That's Professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. Coming up next, a historic win for the U.S. women's soccer team. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The crowd cheered the win of the U.S. women's national soccer team at the World Cup in France in 2019, supporting the team's long fight for equal pay. The legal battle that began with a federal equal pay complaint in 2016 ended this week with a historic settlement of allegations that women's soccer players were paid less than their male counterparts. This is a a huge win for for all women. This very quickly became something that Uh, went far beyond the team, and I think we're going to see that in the coming days, and hopefully this will be a day we look back on in uh, in a number of years and we're a little bit older um, and say that's the moment that everything changed. 
That's women's soccer star Megan Rapino on Good Morning America talking about the settlement. The U.S. Soccer Federation agreed to pay $24 million to the players and committed to providing equal pay for its female players moving forward. Joining me is Nicole Saharsky, a partner at Mayor Brown, lead appellate counsel for the women's team in the case. It didn't always appear that this would end in a victory for the women. Tell us about some of the difficulties along the way. Well, I mean, the first step that the women took was a pretty difficult one, which is to sue their employer. I mean, for these players, it's their dream to play for the United States women's national team and, you know, to play for your employer, play and represent the United States and then feel like you haven't been treated fairly and try to do something about it. It's just not easy. And so there were players for many years since the team was founded who tried to really get some change from U.S. soccer and tried to do something about the unequal pay between the men and the women. But it was this group of players in 1999 that decided to sue, to bring the lawsuit in the first place. And that was a huge step for them to take. So it must have been quite a blow then when a federal judge tossed the suit. What was his reasoning in doing that? So the main reason the district court gave was that the women and the men received approximately the same amount of pay overall. That if you looked at the time period that was covered by the lawsuit, that the women actually made slightly more money than the men. So doesn't that mean it's equal? And our response to that is, no, it it wasn't equal because the women played a lot more games during that time. And frankly, they won a lot more games than the men. And the way that the pay structure works for both the women and the men is that the players get paid essentially for two things. They get paid for playing, which is the job of basically showing up for work like we all do every day. And then they get paid for good performance in the same way that, you know, a person who sells shoes could get um, a bonus for each pair of shoes that he or she sells. You know, these players, both the women and the men, get bonuses if they place in certain tournaments, if they qualify for the World Cup, if they win certain tournaments. So the only way that the women were able to earn about the same amount of the pay as the men was by working more and performing better. And that's not equal pay. That's the point we really were trying to make uh, in our briefs on appeal. During the past six years or so of litigation, there were a lot of deprecating and condescending remarks made about the women players by U.S. soccer. For example, they suggested that women players do not perform equal work requiring equal skill and effort. And I'm wondering how that affected the players and perhaps the lawsuit. Well, I think it it was really disheartening for the players to to see that, especially in a legal filing, and to hear that from their employer, especially when they had just won the World Cup, you know, to to have it be suggested or have them be told that they don't perform as well as the men or that they don't need the same skill as the men. I mean, frankly, that's pretty insulting. And there was significant public blowback at the time that actually caused the uh, then president of U.S. soccer to resign. So, you know, I think... It, 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 it was a bit of a turning point in the litigation because uh, the then president resigned and U.S. soccer got new lawyers to represent them and um, I think needed to back away from those arguments that it had made. The oral arguments in the appeal of the judge tossing the suit were scheduled for March 7th. The Soccer Federation had won below, obviously. So why did they settle before the arguments? Well, I'm sure there are a variety of reasons that they would give. I mean, the oral arguments were coming up. We filed very compelling briefs. It wasn't just us that filed the briefs, but we had very strong amicus support, friend of the court support in the Court of Appeals. 
Um, the men's national team filed a brief in support of the women's team. The federal government through the EEOC filed a brief in support of the women's team. Uh, former federal officials, just a, a long list of folks who joined the amicus effort in the Court of Appeals to really explain why the district court was wrong. There was also a recent decision by another Court of Appeals, the Fourth Circuit, that I think strongly suggested that the reasoning that the judge in the district court used was wrong. So from a legal perspective, I think we pretty clearly had the, the better of the arguments and the tide was against U.S. soccer. I mean, there's also the court of public opinion that U.S. soccer is always considering. It's, I think, been a tough time for that organization, not just because of the equal pay lawsuit, but because of some of the allegations of coach abuse, uh, which have come to the fore more recently that U.S. soccer is dealing with. And so, you know, the players, I think, would were always open to a fair and reasonable settlement of the lawsuit so that they could move together uh, jointly, move forward together with U.S. soccer and really turn the page on this bad chapter of unequal pay. And so, you know, there, there came to a point where U.S. soccer was willing to uh, pay the back pay to acknowledge the, the past uh, unequal pay and to make a commitment of equal pay going forward. And that would that put in place the conditions needed to, to resolve the lawsuit. So let's talk about the settlement. We've heard the big number, $24 million. What exactly does the settlement entail? So there, there are two key components to the settlement, and then there's a very important contingency. The first component of the settlement is looking backwards. For the members of the class, um, actually two classes, that they would get paid for the past pay discrimination by U.S. soccer. And that's what the $24 million is this is intended to do uh, through $22 million in direct payments to the class members and a $2 million fund um, that the class members can use and then can draw upon. And then the second part of the settlement is the looking forward part, which is um, that U.S. soccer has to pay the men and the women equally for all tournaments and games in the future, including for the World Cup. And then the, the important contingency on the settlement is that uh, the settlement will come into effect um, assuming it is approved by the district court when the collective bargaining agreement is ratified. So there are collective bargaining uh, agreement negotiations happening now. They've been happening for a while. And coming to an, an agreement in those is important so that the players have um, basically an agreement that governs their pay going forward. Do you see the collective bargaining agreement as a big hurdle? I think the players and the and U.S. soccer have been working on it for months. I think that they're that everyone is eager to reach a resolution and that there's been a lot of progress towards the resolution. So I think folks are anticipating that it'll be resolved in the near future. How much does this end gender discrimination in soccer? Well, I think it's an incredibly important first step. When you look at it in perspective, the U.S. Women's National Team was formed in 1985, and the players had never been paid equally since then. And this is the first time that these players brought the EEOC complaints and then filed a lawsuit and really got U.S. soccer to do something about it, right? That pay will be equal for the U.S. women's national team and the men's national team going forward. And so, you know, we think it sets an important precedent, obviously, for the, the players on the national team, but, you know, potentially for other national teams, potentially for other sports, et cetera. A lot of people are looking at this settlement and saying, oh, this is going to lead to pay equity in other sports like basketball. So do you see that in this settlement? A lot's being made of it, and I wonder if too much is being hoped for. Well, I think that the settlement really puts the focus on women's sports, and I, 
even outside the settlement, there's been a lot of focus recently on the value of women's sports. I mean, the U.S. women's national team um, is, has been incredibly successful and has brought in a lot of money for U.S. soccer. And I think that they've shown the potential for other women's sports where there perhaps hasn't been as much investment to this point in terms of really what can be done um, when there is sufficient investment in the sport. So I think each each sport, to some extent, is is a little bit different. But, you know, here, this settlement has really put the focus on um, what what can be done when a team, you know, works hard and can partner together with uh, U.S. soccer to move forward and kind of bring the bring the investment and the sport in a good direction and that, you know, equal pay can be achieved. You think this could have a ripple effect on how female athletes are treated even in college sports? I think in, in recent years, there have been some serious inequities and injustices that have come to light. If it's um, the NCAA Final Four tournament where, you know, the women had a tiny weight room and the men had a huge, beautiful weight room and a giant buffet for lunch and the women had a tiny box lunch, you know, once some of that, once some of those um, inequities have been brought to light, you know, they've been remedied. And I think people realize that it's unfair. So whether it's, you know, not having the same investment in the sports or whether it's uh, unequal pay, I, I think the more attention that can be put on these and the more investment in the sport, the better. Any final thoughts? I think we were incredibly excited about the settlement. I mean, to lose summary judgment and then turn it around and be able to get that substantial settlement uh, without even having to argue the case in the Ninth Circuit was terrific. And the players have worked so hard on this. I mean, it's really, they they are so busy in their day-to-day lives with their training schedules and representing the United States and playing for their club teams. You know, the fact that they took on this significant investment of bringing a lawsuit and you know, working on the lawsuit day to day. It's just been um, an incredible amount of work for them. And I, I think they should be really proud of themselves. I mean, I'm really proud of them. And I'm really happy that I've had a chance to participate in this process and, and help. Thanks for being on the show. That's Nicole Soharsky of Mayor Brown. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.